Blunt Post. Good morning and welcome to the Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK. I'm your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of the Blunt Post, and I'm thrilled to be with you today on this uh, beautiful Monday morning. I uh, hope you had a good weekend and are ready for another exciting and unpredictable week of developments in the country, uh, especially in D.C., and of course, our uh, presidential race. If you've never heard The Blunt Post with Vic, my show is about covering national breaking and headline news, uh, analysis, commentary, and I also interview high-profile elected officials, dignitaries, and other headline makers. For today's show, I interviewed uh, California Congressman Ted Lieu, uh, which is coming up shortly, uh, as well as we're going to air clips of my interview with then-presidential candidate Marianne Williamson. The Blunt Post is also about uh, featuring and celebrating uh, extraordinary individuals, public servants, activists, uh, community leaders, and organizations. Um, It's about recognizing and focusing on exceptional achievements and hopefully inspiring our listeners. But before we go any further, I'd like to dedicate today's show uh, to Lila Garrett uh, and pay tribute to her honor. Lila passed away on February 1st. She was a longtime and beloved host of Connect the Dots on KPFK, a powerful force in journalism and a crusader in democratic causes. Lila was an Emmy Award-winning television screenwriter with a passion for politics and was a regular contributor to LA Progressive. Uh, She was born in 1925. Lila was a comedy writer and began her career writing questions for game shows, including The Second Hundred Years, My Favorite Martian, All in the Family, and Bewitched. Lila won two Emmy Awards for 90-minute comedies, Mother of the Bride, and The Girl Who Wouldn't Lose, the movie The Way We Were, starring Barbara Streisand, and reportedly, it was written about Lila Garrett. Lila was also the president of the Los Angeles chapter of the Americans for Democratic Action, founded by Eleanor Roosevelt. And for many years, she was the member uh, of the Progressive Democrats of America. And we at the Blunt Post with Vic uh, have put together a, a tribute clip. Um, So take a listen. Take over the Democratic Party and return it to the people. They have failed us miserably. And that is the subject I would like to discuss with you today. A perfect distraction for activating the list of destructions. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that you, me, we the people are being manipulated into keeping our eyes squarely off the ball. I'm Lila Garrett. We thank Lila for her enormous contribution to KPFK, uh, to journalism, and to democracy. Lila left an enduring legacy, uh, not just uh, with KPFK, but in our community, and will be greatly missed. Well, that was a great clip, um, very apropos and uh, authentically Lila.
So let's discuss some uh, national headline news, international, I should say, uh, considering the coronavirus happens to be on uh, top of uh, everyone's mind uh, around the globe. It has uh, so far caused the death of 19 people in the U.S., and about 30 states have confirmed that they are uh, affected by the coronavirus. Internationally, the coronavirus has killed uh, over 3,500 people and has infected over 105,000. At least eight U.S. states uh, have declared a state of emergency. So the members of President Trump's um, coronavirus task force yesterday tried to sort of fan out the, you know, the controversy and, and uh, all the talk about how badly the administration has been handling this, and it was even a bigger disaster. They had a press uh, conference but they could not get themselves to really be organized and uh, have some solid answers for people. So the Housing and Urban Development Secretary Ben Carson and Surgeon General uh, Jerome Adams basically stumbled and uh, uh, deflected during this press conference and could not really have a straight answer for um, the members of the press. They were uh, unable and or unwilling to answer questions. And according to the Associated Press, the White House um, overruled health officials who wanted to recommend the elderly and physically fragile Americans that they should be advised not to fly on commercial airlines because of the new coronavirus. And this is uh, according to the Associated Press. So. Uh, of course, the White House denies this, and uh, the ban plays on. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, submitted the plan this week, or this last week, as a way of trying to control the virus. But the uh, White House officials ordered the air travel recommendations to be removed. Uh, some, someone from CDC has um, made that claim, who has direct knowledge of it. Uh, the Trump administration officials have since suggested certain people should not consider traveling, but have not stopped short of stronger guidance sought by the CDC. So basically, we're sort of like in this state of unknown with what's going on with the coronavirus from the top down. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of you have no confidence in this administration. And uh, so, you know, we all have to sort of take care of ourselves and, and inform ourselves and educate ourselves uh, and take all the measures that we can um, and hope for the best and wait until they figure this out. Since our president has more pressing matters to uh, address, like tweeting, we'll see. Okay, so now for the election and the uh, Democratic candidates. It's been um, a roller coaster. A lot has happened, and especially in the last week or so. The word surprise keeps uh, coming into my head because every time one of the candidates suspends their campaign, it's a huge surprise to me. And I guess it's a good thing because, um, to me, uh, most of them have been very, very qualified um, you know, to be president. And of course, pretty much anyone is. Uh, compared to what we have in the office. So, you know, that surprise started with Senator Harris when she suspended her campaign. I did not see that coming. And, you know, it's kind of weird even whether I was going to ultimately vote for her or not, it still feels weird because someone very qualified drops out. So, and then, of course, that continued. It continued with uh, Marion Williamson, whom I interviewed, and you will hear the uh, some excerpts from that interview 
uh, later on. I admire Marianne Williamson a um, great deal. And then there was uh, Pete Buttigieg, who was sort of came out of nowhere for, for most of us on a national level and did so well. Um, so there was, at times, there was an actual sort of hope that he could make it. And then he suspended his uh, campaign, and that was a surprise, followed by uh, Michael Bloomberg, whose campaign, I think, lasted just over two months. He spent over $500 million of his own money. And I do really appreciate what he said when he was suspending his campaign, and that is that he said, today I am leaving the race for the same reason I got into it, and that's to defeat Donald Trump, because it is clear to me that staying in the race would make achieving that goal more difficult. So I honor that about uh, Mayor Bloomberg. I don't know. I, I thought when he first joined the race, I thought he wanted to galvanize people and then give his support to someone else. And then at times I thought, well, maybe he actually does want to be president. I don't know the answer to that. Either way, um, he was another great addition to the race. And of course, the last person that surprised me was uh, Senator Warren, another super qualified person uh, who suspended her campaign. That was a kind of a little bit sad to see her go. So there we are. I mean, we are in this basically, let's get blunt. It's now between Senator Sanders and uh, Vice President Biden. What we have is Joe Biden has had the endorsements of uh, Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, and Michael Bloomberg, while Bernie Sanders has had uh, the endorsements of Marianne Williamson and uh, this past weekend, um, Reverend Jesse Jackson. I think everyone is waiting to see who Senator uh, Warren is going to endorse. So that would be an important one. But it's been, um, it's been a very interesting presidential campaign so far. Uh, Super Tuesday was definitely a Super Tuesday with a capital S. It was uh, not what most of us, I think, expected. Of course, Joe Biden did lot better than we thought he would do, but it's not over yet uh, for a while, so uh, we will keep you updated. Let's get blunt here. This is not the time <laughs> to be undecided. I mean, if you are undecided, and I know that most of our listeners are not undecided, but for those across the country who are, uh, I can't fathom someone being undecided, because if it's a matter of who in, in, in the Democratic Party, which one of the candidates uh, should get the nomination, and, uh, you know, we know that uh, any one of them is far more qualified than who we have in the office. So really, honestly, this is a, a matter of do we really want four more disastrous years of Trump and his um, what's referred to as an administration, although it doesn't act like it. So, you know, we we really, truly, it's cliche, and we've said it before, and we're going to keep saying is this is when we all come together and we put our differences aside. And no matter who our nominee is, we vote blue no matter who. And we keep to that. That's what ha needs to happen. So... There it is. <laughs> Let's get blunt. As far back as I remember, I've looked to 
uh, quotes and slogans um, and just uh, all types of wisdom for inspiration, sometimes to get me through tough times. And, uh, you know, I have so many favorites um, that I go back to all the time, from Emerson to Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, Gandhi, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, Desmond Tutu, and Elie Wiesel. So today, uh, of all things, I want to tell you a slogan from 12 Steps that really applies to a lot of things, but especially to today's uh, political climate and crisis, I should say. And that is, the slogan is, if nothing changes, nothing changes. That says a lot. It's used for, in 12 Steps, it's used for people who you know, for lack of a better way of explaining, are tore up from the floor up, are a sort of self-destructed by substance abuse and other things, and uh, they are unwilling to change uh, their their ways, their their methods, their way of doing things, and yet they expect different results. So those who have been in the program for a long time will turn to them and say, "If nothing changes, nothing changes." So. Here we are in a political climate where a lot of people have been working very hard to change things and change uh, from the establishment politics, and we're sort of still seeing this um, develop. And that brings me to Marianne Williamson, uh, who uh, is definitely a, a change maker, a maverick uh, in what she does. I have been a fan of Marianne Williamson for many years. I've gone to her lectures. I've read her books. And I was very enthusiastic about her candidacy. And I was uh, privileged, I should say, to interview her about, I think, about a week or 10 days before she suspended her campaign. And uh, I want to play some clips from that interview. We did it right here uh, at the KPFK studios. She talks about the change and about the, the difficulty of changing institutionalized ways of doing things and what she calls the campaign industrial complex. So take a listen. So Marianne, I just want to ask you sort of broadly, what do you think about the campaign so far? It's been an exhilarating experience and a brutal one, both. I find uh, actually talking to people, to voters, about the state of our country, where we've been and where we need to go. Very moving, very poignant, and very hopeful. But then there is another universe out there, another political universe. That's what I call the campaign industrial complex. Like that. And that includes the political establishment. It includes the media that is involved with it. It includes such things as the DNC, the polling, the money, the pundits. And that, if anything, is a suppressant to democracy. It is a manipulation rather than a facilitation of the democratic process. Um, I've experienced firsthand and personally how that system resists anyone coming in to have a different conversation than the pre-prescribed one permitted. And um, the tension between those two universes the gap between those two universes is concerning to me as an American and potentially tragic for our country. Uh, of course, we always know that uh, women are held to different standards, too, in politics. Um, so I've seen a lot of that, too, that's played out. Well, I think you are being charitable in your assessment. 
this was not just being, I know in my case, this was not just about being held to a different standard. This was about being proactively vilified and demonized. Right. So, and in terms of anyone coming from the outside, such as uh, you saw this with Andrew Yang, you saw it with myself, given much less time on the debate stage and then cast out, literally, if, in fact, you're saying things that the prescribed powers don't approve of. Um, But I think that what you said is very significant. We don't name it something like campaign industrial complex, but then when someone does name it, you go, right, it's so true. We're talking about a multi-billion dollar business. That's not what our democracy is supposed to be. Our democracy is not supposed to be a multi-billion dollar business. Right. It, is about, it is supposed to be about the collective conscience and will of the American people, no matter who we are, whether we're rich or whether we're poor, whether we're black, white, gay, straight, man, woman. The, the profundity of the ideal is that there is a wisdom in you and 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 a wisdom in me that should have nothing to do with where we've come from, what we do, who we are, but that has to do with our collective conscience and our own deep-seated wisdom about where the country should go. Now, I feel on this campaign I have touched that place. I've had the honor and the privilege of being around voters and, and, and seeing what I've seen from my career for 35 years, which is that people are good, people are noble, people are smart, if we would just allow that to play itself out. But it's, it's being stifled. The will of the people is literally being stifled, and it's being stifled through manipulation. It's not just, you know, when we think of voter suppression, we think of the obvious ways that voter suppression occurs, and, that, and it does, and that's very concerning. But what I've seen on this campaign is that it's not just outright voter suppression, it's voter manipulation by creating narratives about people, false narratives that keep getting repeated and repeated and repeated, smears, propaganda weapons. Right. Even the whole idea, by the way, of an outsider candidate. We should ask ourselves, outside what? Exactly. Outside what? In America, theoretically, there is no outside or inside. We're all equal. And theoretically, your wisdom is no less, more or less important than the wisdom of someone who is a business person or the wisdom of someone who, for that matter, is a congressperson. But our problem today is not a lack of political mechanics. Our problem today is a lack of political vision. It's not that we don't have anyone who knows how to drive the car. It's that we're on the wrong road. Now, Americans need to think very deeply about that because we have allowed ourselves to to be lured into a situation where basically we're just observing what they're doing, even though at this point, in this moment, we know we're witnessing a slow-moving car crash. Right. And it's been obviously happening for three years. And we're trying to change that. We're trying to... Are we? I hope so. I'd like to think well, so. Well, I think we need to really ask ourselves what we mean by that and ask ourselves what we're doing. Because what happened in the last election was that the DNC put their finger on the, on the scale. I personally think that if they had not done that, then in the primaries, either Hillary would have won or Bernie would have won. But I think we would have all felt good about it. And I don't think Trump would be president today. And this time, they're doing something very similar. 
But they're not saying it has to be this one person. But it basically has to be people in their crowd. They make it too difficult through polling, through money, uh, through all of these ways. It's very difficult to get in there um, and to stay in there. And they, they have ways through, you know, and it's not, it's not is it the DNC. It's the whole matrix. Right. It's media. It's, 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 it's a mindset. And I had, before this campaign, um, here we are at KPFK. I'm an old, old-style lefty. I thought a lot of these shenanigans only happened on the right against us. And my eyes have been opened. Um, I am no longer naive about these things. I'd always heard the expression that the left is a circular firing squad. <laughs> but I, I never saw it until I myself was in the center of that firing squad. Yeah, I echo that because... Um Someone told me years ago that there's no such thing as liberal media, that uh, media by design is, uh, can't be liberal because they're for money. They're to make money. Um, sure, certain networks are less conservative and less biased than others, but overall, corporate media is generating part of the narrative. Well, what you're saying is correct, but I think there's something that goes further than that. Even so-called progressive media. We've got a really, really, really big issue here. And that is forces of authoritarianism, global authoritarianism and neo-fascism are literally standing at our door. This is so not the time to be shutting anyone up who's speaking anything close to a progressive message. We've been talking about how the establishment, the political and the campaign industrial uh, complex. complex has been sort of um, engineered to sort of have like this popular kids group and shut out anyone that has a different message or doesn't fit the mold and is not playing the game of the much larger billions of dollars industries that are the key players. What can we do in the next, what, 11 months, Marianne? Well, first of all, I so appreciate your obvious deep understanding of what's going on here below the surface. And you mentioned the Me Too movement. You mentioned the abuse of women, sexual harassment of women. And you mentioned that extraordinarily relevant line from Martin Luther King. We will, in the end, not remember uh, the words of our, of our enemies. We will also remember the silence of our friends. We have gotten as a society that when a woman is being sexually harassed, someone should speak up. But there are different kinds of ways that a woman can be harassed. There are different kinds of ways that a woman can be abused. And mocking her, telling lies about her in the public sphere. Remember, women didn't used to be in the public sphere as much as we are now. So this is relatively new. And when lies are repeated about a woman, narratives just continue to be extended when there's no fact-checking on it and it just said over and over again. Speaking up, it's a form of bullying. Absolutely. It's a form of bullying. It's a form of abuse. And the saddest part for me, Vic, is how many times women are the abusers. I mean, I've experienced some things and I thought, wow, I bet that woman thinks of herself as a feminist. Yeah, sometimes the enemy is from within, too. Well, it always is. It always is, including in all of us. I've, I've looked at myself with so much of this because... In the Course in Miracles, it says that 
only if you take 100% responsibility for your experience will you be able to change it. So I've had to certainly look deeply at myself, what what part did I play, etc. But um, I think there are two things that bring up other people's darkness, your darkness, but also your light. And I think it's kind of like when you're at an airport, if you see something, say something. Right. I think that when you say, what can we do? We all need to speak up now. And your image of the bully was really, uh, really true. Somebody else is being bullied, and it's what I'd said before. Somebody else is being mocked. You're afraid if you stand up for them, you'll be bullied or you'll be mocked. This is not the time for silence. This is the time for speaking our truths in times and in places where it's convenient and in times and in places where it is inconvenient. That is the only way we will make it through these very, very turbulent waters. I completely agree. It's time to put away people-pleasing. Thank you. Um, It's so funny that you say that because that's exactly what I talk about all the time. It's a politics of people-pleasing. And I say to audiences on this campaign, I'm not here to say to you what I think you you need want to hear. You know, these these politicians, and by the way, I'd like to make a distinction between the candidates and the system. Because I've been running for president. I've gotten to know a lot of these people. The candidates, the vast majority of the candidates, very lovely people. They're victims of it, too. So this is not about the candidates, my critique here. It's about the system and the, the, the container for all of this. That's right. very different. It's very important to me. But politicians are, they go into a situation and they're told, this is what you say that blacks want to hear. This is what you say that gay people want to hear. This is what you say that women want to hear, et cetera. And to me, we have to talk to each other right now as Americans. You're gay and you're American. You're Jewish and you're American. You're black and you're American. You're woman and you're American. It, all of the, the individuals individual identities that are in trouble are in trouble because America's in trouble. So I, 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 I say to audiences so often, I'm not here to tell you what somebody told me you want to hear. I'm here to talk to you as adults about how we must come together now and think about what is happening in our country and what we must do to change things so that future generations will be able to experience the blessings of this of this democracy. And I feel there's a listening for that. I feel there's a deep listening for that, and that's all the more reason why it is so disturbing that there are forces out there who seek to manipulate and even suppress the democratic process because they think they know better. It's very paternalistic. It's not democracy. It's this paternalism of we know what would be best for people, so we're gonna to try to herd them into a, a particular view of things. This is Vic Jaramie at The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK, and I am speaking with presidential candidate Marion Williamson, discussing her campaign, uh, the road she's been on, and 2020 uh, spirituality. So we'll be right back after this break. An exceptional way to support KPFK is by donating your old vehicle to the station. Whether it's operational or not, you receive a tax write-off and we retain a portion of the funds to keep KPFK powered by the people. To donate, please call 877-KPFK-AUTO. That is 877-KPFK-AUTO.
sign up as a KPFK Sustainer Circle member. That $10 helps to pay for daily broadcasts of Democracy Now!, Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott, and all of the news and information you hear on KPFK, including on my own show, Rising Up with Sonali. You get a lot for your monthly contribution, and we need that gift right now to keep bringing you all the programs you count on. $10 makes a big impact. We combine it with contributions from your fellow listeners who rely on KPFK as much as you do. Public Radio only works with you. Contribute now. Go to kpfk.org support, then click Sustainer Circle. Whatever you can do, please do. ALA, this is Stephanie Miller. Join me for news updates, snappy political satire, and commentary on all the crazy. Start your day with The Stephanie Miller Show at 6 a.m. on 90.7 KPFK. KPFK, 90.7 FM. You're listening to The Blunt Post with Vic, presidential candidate Marianne Williamson in the studio. And, uh, you know, Marianne is uh, spiritually, she... She talks about so many different things, and she's so versed in so many different things, as uh, admittedly, I'll get some uh, heat for saying this, but you know, I've been sober for over 11 years, and I'm always very impressed by her astute um, about 12 steps in AA, and uh, she was talking about uh, making good for the wrongs and your character defects, which in AA would be a fourth step, and then we also have the ninth step or eighth step and a ninth step in AA, which is about making amends. And that's what we haven't done to the African-American community, um, which is to make amends and make good so that we can sort of have a clean slate. I think that's um, an interesting particular issue today because there's a lot of talk about investigating your own white privilege. And that inner work is important. But Integrative politics, which is what we need now, includes both inner and outer change. Martin Luther King talked about how we need quantitative shifts in our circumstances and also qualitative shifts in our souls. So if you uh, took $1,000 from me, I would appreciate the apology, but I would also like my money back. Right. So I've been doing ritualistic apologies, white America to black America, for decades. But the issue of amends is absolutely correct. You need to atone and, where possible, you need to make amends. It's not either or. It's both and. Absolutely. And one of the reasons I feel strongly about reparations as opposed to just race-based policies is because race-based policies does um, – it, it, it speaks to the financial restitution, but it doesn't carry the kind of psychological and emotional and moral authority that reparations do because reparations contain an inherent mea culpa, an inherent acknowledgement of a wrong that was, that was done by wrong, one people against another, a recognition on the part of the descendants of those people that a debt exists, a debt is owed, and the willingness on the part of that people to pay the debt. That is what will interrupt the pattern and free our future in ways that will not otherwise be accomplished. Amen. And it's the holiday season. And uh, also, you know, this is a time I, I tell people this, and they always laugh and say, if, you know, we don't, you know, I'm in so many 12 programs, and one of them is Codependence Anonymous. But this is a time when we can afford to be a little codependent because we do have to push our friends and family, you know, just about everything. Just uh, talk to them and get them to donate, register them, uh, pressure them to register. Um, it's just, you know, there's so much at stake. Um, 
And most of us, not Marianne, but most of the rest of us sort of know only the tip of the iceberg of what happens. And I always tell friends or whomever, they repeat things they hear on CNN or MSNBC. I'm not even going to get into Fox. And I always just tell them there's so much more than that. Just because uh, a big network says it doesn't mean it's the whole story. If you really want to know the whole story. Or if it's even true. Or if it's, yeah, absolutely. And I always would have agreed with you, but now I more than agree with you. I know what you're saying is true. Yeah, and it's, and it's very easy because when you think about the enormity of it and when you think about the power of it, it becomes overwhelming and kind of daunting and sad. Again, you know, in my 12 steps, we, we always go back and say, let's stay in the solution because we just can't give in to it. Otherwise, we're going to well, get... If you're going to be in the solution, that means you have to support the solution. Absolutely. And if you find someone, whether it's me or anyone else, you know, it's everybody has, you have to look into your own conscience. But whoever the candidate is, you feel is the solution. Give support, volunteer, and send money. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we just, we all need to do a little bit more than we have been doing. I think that's so true, Vic. I feel that way. I've been saying that for a long time now that I felt in the last few years that there are so many ways in which enough of us are now where we need to be. Enough of us are now doing what we need to do. Just step it up. Yeah. You know, a lot of people finally, we've gotten to the point, okay, I'm who I need to be enough, doing what I should be doing enough. Just step it up now, everybody. Step it up. That has yeah. been my feeling for a long time, and it's really true politically. I mean, you know, on one hand, you think anyone who's been, who hasn't been under a rock, has watched the last three years, would be in a state of, like, anxiety of what can I do? What are we doing? What's the plan? <laughs> but just to think that, you know, the rest of us for the next 11 months have so much work to do because um, so much is at stake. I mean, between our foreign policy, between um, the economy and health care, Social Security, so many things are all of a sudden they are at jeopardy all over again. I mean, LGBT rights, you know, we made such great strides. We, we gained so much during President Obama and uh, we've lost some of that. You know, the trans community has been targeted. Um, you know, there's a trans military ban, and uh, they keep chipping away, and now health care. You just said something that's very important. When you talk about the trans community now, you're not just talking about a community denied equal protection. It's worse than that. It's a community that is in some ways actually targeted. This is so huge, and serious people have to do serious thinking. So that, for instance, when I've talked about this as president, we need a president who will not only make sure that that, that, that uh, uh, population is protected, but given special protection. Special protection means an acknowledgement on the part of law enforcement that there is special risk associated here. Yeah. And those, this is where politics matters, because that can make all the difference between whether or not people have the protection that they need from law enforcement and other institutions. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The trans community is targeted, and they were the easiest target for the current administration. And uh, I always say, and I'm repeating someone, I forget who said it, said the LGBT rights movement is about one thing and one thing only, and that's the right to be average. And... That means that we don't necessarily want special rights or, or separate rights, 
But at times, as Marianne said, it's necessary to put it on paper because it means protections. You know, I remember many, many years ago when the conversation first started about uh, marriage equality. And that's another thing. I remember when even Obama, people like that were taking too long to get there. Well, marriage between a man and a woman, all that crap. I mean, it was ridiculous, I felt. but I, And I remember being on... on um, Larry King show and talking in defense of marriage equality very, very early on. Um, and I remember where, how I had been changed. Not that I was ever against it, but the thing that really made me more proactively, no, you need to say something, because that's really what we're talking about. You know, I often talk about the difference between being anti-slavery and being abolitionist. Anti-slavery means you're against it, but you don't necessarily say anything. Abolitionist means not on my watch. So the thing that shifted me from being just just like, oh, I think gay people should be able to get married, versus, no, you're a public figure and you need to talk about this, was when a gay friend of mine said, we're always taught, we're always told, you're just not normal, you're just not normal. And here we want to do the most normal thing in the world. Right. Oh, we're asking. Like when you were talking about being average, we want to do something could not be more normal. Right. And we're being told we can't. And that just really, really, like, that was it for me. Absolutely. And, and we have, you know, I've grown in areas we've all kind of learned and even in LGBT rights and LGBT social justice um, I always tell people because I have I have uh, heterosexual friends who are sort of very cautious you know in a good way to say the right words and terms and names and labels and I always tell them listen I'm as a gay man I'm in the middle of it right and you would think that I sort of am updated on everything but even I make mistakes so the point I'm trying to make is we all sort of learn and evolve and change. And, you know, important thing is to, like, really listen to people and see where they're coming from. And why wouldn't, I mean, if you just think about that, would we not want a <laughs> spiritual person in the White House, a spiritual person to lead our country uh, at a time when we need that more than an economist or we need that more than someone um, you know, someone that, that can change our, I mean, look at our foreign policy. It's a mess. It's a joke, literally a joke. If you haven't seen it, <laughs> go on YouTube. You know, it's, it's a time when we all need it. I know that when all the tools in the world are not helping me through something, the last place I go to, which is, um, it shouldn't be the last place, but it's the, the one that helps me at the end of the day is spirituality. JFK said we cannot afford to be materially rich and spiritually poor. Love that. All that spirituality is is the path of the heart. And I think the average American is guided in our individual behavior by at least an effort uh, to act according to the dictates of our conscience. And what we're talking about here is that public policy should also be uh, guided by dictates of conscience and integrity and compassion and mercy and justice. And when you have public policy that is more often guided by the dictate of short-term profit maximization for uh, corporate, uh, corporate entities, then that's far too often at the expense of conscience, ethics, integrity, and any level of reverence for life or for planet. 
awesome. for human beings, for other species. And that divergence today between the basic goodness and decency of the, Amer- the average American and average uh, and decency and dignity in American policy, international as well as, as domestic, that's a, that's a gap that it is the moral challenge of our generation to close. Well, I hope you you enjoyed the the clips from my interview with Marianne Williamson. She's a treasure, and I'm so glad that she is uh, in the conversation. And even though um, she suspended her campaign, uh, she made a great mark in this 2020 campaign and the conversations. And of course, um, we human beings are very resistant to uh, change, especially a change that's so great. Uh, as the message that Marianne Williamson has. I remember um, the first time I went to hear her many years ago at the Saban Theater, and she one of the things she said, which I think was from her book, her first book, uh, Return to Love, was, uh, you know, it's a long quote, but she said something like, um, you know, who are you to play small? And those who read Marianne Williamson know what that comes from. And I was just so inspired by her, so to see her run for for president was was very exciting, and now she is uh, supporting Senator Sanders, and um, uh, I am I'm just very grateful that I had the chance to talk to her right here at KPFK, and I hope you enjoyed that. So I interviewed one of our notable congressmen uh, from California, Congressman Ted Liu from the 33rd Congressional District uh, for today's show. It was an honor and a privilege to do that. And uh, we had a long discussion about the impeachment, (laughs) Donald Trump. Congressman Liu was very candid about that and congressional oversight in general um, going forward. We talked about the 2020 census and why that's important and everyone should be paying attention to that. Um, And something that uh, I've sort of watched and followed for many years, and that is uh, the congressman's bill to ban gay conversion therapy, and uh, something that he introduced many years ago that, you know, saw California being the first state to ban uh, gay conversion therapy, and now his, uh, his bill on a federal level. And then, of course, we talked about the coronavirus. So, I will um, let you hear the interview. Congressman Liu, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to uh, speak with me on the Blunt Post with Vic. Appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm a big fan, and I'm very excited to have you on the show. And KPFK, I'm sure listeners are getting a great treat to talk about um, so many different topics that uh, are happening. There's so much happening right now. But uh, before we get into that, I do want to do a little intro for some of our listeners who may not know some of the, you know, your credentials, the biggest parts, because there's so much. So I'm going to do this really quickly. Congressman Liu represents the 33rd Congressional District. He is serving his third term in Congress and is currently, uh, he sits on the House Judiciary Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He was elected by his Democratic colleagues to serve as co-chair of the Democratic Party and uh, Communications Committee. Uh, Congressman Liu has been a leader in Congress against ethnic and racial profiling 
and Discrimination Against the LGBTQIA Community. He serves as Whip of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus, Vice Chair of the LGBTQIA Equality Caucus, and Co-Chair of the Cloud Computing Caucus. How was that? Did I do that justice? Uh, that was uh, way too much, but it was great. <laughs> you know, you're the American dream. You're, you're a product of immigration. You know, we're so lucky to have someone of your stature in, in our state, in our great state of California. Thank you. So, Congressman, um, just so that we sort of address the obvious, and you don't have to go into it in detail, but just your perspective and your how do you reflect on what happened with, uh, with the impeachment in the House and the aftermath in Senate and where it stands now? The evidence was overwhelming that Donald Trump uh, committed crimes and that these were impeachable offenses. The House impeachment power worked as intended. Unfortunately, their Senate's removal power did not work. And that's because, uh, to me, uh, the Republican senators acted like a quivering mass of jelly. They simply bowed down uh, mm-hmm. to whatever Donald Trump wanted. And justice was not done. And it was a fake trial. I mean, whoever heard of a trial with no witnesses and documents? Right. That's exactly what happened in the Senate. Yeah, absolutely. That was just such a farce. I, I don't think any American would have that kind of privilege to have that kind of trial. But um, all we can do is do our best. And I know that you and Congressman Schiff and many others did what you had to do. And uh, the House was able to impeach President Trump. So glad we talked about that. I want to go into um, just Trump oversight and see if you want to elaborate on that and what you and your colleagues are doing going forward. U.S. Congress has, as one of its primary responsibilities, oversight of both the executive branch and the judicial branch. It's uh, inherent in our separation of powers. And the House has been doing oversight before impeachment. We did it while impeachment was happening. We're going to continue to do it after impeachment. It's especially important now because of the failure of the Senate to do justice. It's really up to the American people in November to decide whether they want to remove Donald Trump from office. And I believe we need to continue to give the American people uh, as much information as possible about any misconduct being committed either by the president or other people in his administration. Absolutely. Well said. Congressman, um, I'm a gay man and I'm a huge fan of yours uh, for many reasons, one of which being that you are, you've been a great ally to the LGBTQIA community and Pride season is coming up. And uh, for those who um, may not be aware of, you were a pioneer in banning gay conversion, as it's called sometimes, gay conversion therapy uh, in the state of California. You introduced it in 2012. Now you have your efforts, you're taking it to a federal level. So can you tell us about that? Yes. Uh, so-called gay conversion therapy is not only fraudulent, but in uh, some cases it could cause harm to the patient, including depression, anxiety, uh, and even suicide. Right. Very pleased that I authored the first law in the nation to abandon gay conversion therapy for minors. I'm very pleased that 19 states have now followed suit. Most recently, uh, the red state of Utah did it. And so it's very exciting to see progress 
happen uh, in both red and blue states. And I've introduced federal legislation that will ban it not only in the entire nation, but also uh, ban it for adults as well. Uh, one reason we chose to do it for minors is because states under uh, the legal framework have particular powers to protect minors. Uh, at the federal level, uh, we do have uh, additional powers that allow us uh, to ban this for adults as well. So that's uh, what we're working on, and hopefully we can uh, get it through. That's great that you, you clarified that because I was wondering about that too. Um, and it's such an important um, important topic. And as you mentioned, Utah banning it, that's a, that's a really big deal. So uh, we will be following that as, um, uh, as it progresses. And I also want to talk about the census, which is coming up. And I know that that's, a, that's something that's very important to you. And, you know, no matter what we say, some segments of the community don't really take it as seriously as they should. So um, if you can t- talk to your constituents and just, just listeners about the importance of census and participating... The U.S. Census is critically important for a number of reasons. First, it determines the amount of federal funding to local schools, cities, as well as uh, the state of California. Estimates are that for every person not counted, uh, the local jurisdiction will lose $2,000 per person per year. So over 10 years, that's $20,000. You can imagine that if hundreds of thousands or even millions of people are undercounted or not counted in California, that's a lot of money uh, that we will lose out on. And this applies to um, not just schools, but also your public safety departments, um, as well as uh, health care programs. So it's extremely important for funding. It also determines the number of representatives that represent California uh, in D.C., Ten years ago, California did not lose any congressional seats, uh, and it was about a difference of 100 or 50,000 or so people or less. Uh, So with different projections of this census, it could be a matter of 40,000 people filling that form out or not that would determine whether we, in fact, lose a congressional seat. And that's also very important. So I urge everyone to fill out the census. Uh, the information you provide to the census uh, cannot be shared with any other agency because if the census employee does that, they could go to prison. And in addition, uh, there is no citizenship question uh, on this data. It's all confidential. It's only used just for the census, and it only takes about 60 seconds to fill out. Thank you for that, Congressman. So if I may uh, put you on the spot for a second, <laughs> are there any uh, candidates, presidential candidates, that uh, are your favorites at this time? Can you uh, share? I am enthusiastically neutral. <laughs> okay. I like that. I appreciate that. And I, uh, think, any, I think any of them um, are clearly superior to Donald Trump. Right. Isn't that the truth? Vote blue no matter who. I right. really like that slogan. Um, Congressman, before we, um, before we leave, uh, anything else you want to share, you want to talk about that I um, haven't brought up that's really important to you? Uh, th- that I think um, the coronavirus outbreak right. uh, is expanding in other countries, and we got our first case in Northern California of a patient who 
contracted the coronavirus who had not traveled uh, to China. In fact, we don't really know where he got the coronavirus from. And with cases skyrocketing in Italy and in Europe, uh, we have to be on guard here in the United States. So the House of Representatives were going to reject the cuts in Donald Trump budget to the Centers for Disease Control and to uh, the National Institutes of Health. Instead, we're going to pass a robust supplemental funding package uh, to fight the coronavirus and make sure we're prepared uh, if the cases were to increase in the United States. Great. So it sounds like the, the House is very proactive in, in dealing with this. Um, that's good to hear. I'm sure a lot of our listeners uh, would be comforted by what you said. So, Congressman, I, I really am grateful for your time. I don't want to take any more of it. I um, just want to thank you and just say that um, the LGBTQI community always thinks of you, especially now that we're leading up to Pride for our champions um, such as yourself. So thank you again, and good luck. Thank you so much. So that was Congressman Ted Liu of California. I thank him uh, for the interview, and I found him to be um, very surprising. It was a great interview. He was at times very you know, diplomatic and just matter-of-fact, and at times very candid and very um, didn't hold anything back. Um, so I really enjoyed that interview, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, and I look forward to um, seeing him uh, doing all the great things that he's doing. So thank you, Congressman. So um, as I said at the beginning of the program, I, I like to acknowledge and talk about not just people who do great work, um, but also organizations. And sometimes, uh, you know, it's obviously people who are in charge of those organizations. So for today, I want to talk to you about a local organization uh, called You Matter Not Alone. And You Matter Not Alone is a, a suicide prevention and suicide awareness a charity right here in Los Angeles, and it was founded by Donna Quach. Donna Quach is now a retired, retired military lieutenant, army lieutenant, and she's also a clinical psychotherapist and founded this organization because she saw uh, alarming rates of suicide in the country, especially with veterans, and wanted to do something. And her and her team of, of her clinical team and volunteers uh, all pro bono. Uh, they have. They go to schools. They go to different organizations, um, colleges, and talk about uh, suicide prevention and awareness, bullying. And they have groups, peer groups, and many other programs. Very grassroots. That does uh, really good work. Uh, Donna is an, is an extraordinary person. Uh, what she does. So many different things, and uh, it's all c completely pro bono, her work with uh, You Matter Not Alone. So uh, if you want to learn more, you can go to their website, which is youmatter-notalone.org. So that's our organization to highlight today. So before we go, I want to um, say a big thanks to my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom the show would not be possible, believe me. And um, Ricky also composed and produced the original 
theme music for this show, so I'm very grateful to have Ricky on this team. And I would also like to thank our uh, program director, Kevin Fleming, for his leadership and guidance through this whole thing. And of course, uh, last but not least, our station manager, Aniel Fields, for making all of this possible. And um, of course, of course, I'd like to thank all of you for uh, joining me today for The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK. Uh, I hope that you tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. I will have another interview. And uh, in the meantime, if you'd like more information, please visit thebluntpost.com or kpfk.org. So I will leave you with this on this Monday morning. If nothing changes, nothing changes. Yeah.